Mark, would you mind opening us in prayer? Sure. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather to hear from you from your word. I pray that you would bless your servant Josh as he leads us, that you would speak to us, that we would uh, hear more about you, know more about your intentions for us, Lord, and how we are to be in this world we created. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> so this morning we're going to talk about something that I'm sure all of us are very intimately familiar with, and that is that work is difficult, that it is toil, um, that it's hard. You know, we've spent the last two weeks um, talking about how uh, God's design for work, how it's good, um, how it's given an inherent dignity um, from God, that it's uh, to cultivate his creation, that it's to serve others. Um, but today we deal with that big but. So the, all those are ideas are really nice. They're all true. But the reality is that you know, we see how that is in creation, how God designed work. But we live in this area right here. And so we're dealing with the frustration that um, in work that all of creation experiences after the fall. And um, so how many people experienced hardship in their work this week? I would think everybody here had some difficulty that there was toil in what they were doing. <clears throat> so if work is all the wonderful things that we talked about, you know, uh, that I just mentioned, then why will I struggle to get out of bed tomorrow to go to work? Or um, why will it be hard for me to do tasks around the house? Um, or why will it be hard to think of doing my work as unto the Lord um, when I'm given a meaningless task by someone at my work? One of the things that we discover uh, from reading Scripture is that it confronts all these things uh, with the reality of what they are. And that is that, that work is hard. Uh, that it mani this manifests itself in many different ways. Um, and while we are not left hopeless, we need to be honest about uh, the, the truth of the way things are. We don't live in some fairy tale in which we think that you know, work is going to be easy and um, always fruitful and that it's going to, you know, uh, we're always going to experience the dignity uh, and design that God had for work. Um, so we cannot approach with a naivety that work is not hard, and, and Scripture clearly teaches otherwise. So we're going to start this morning by um, looking at Genesis 3, um, and the, specifically the passage relating to the curse that results from sin. So I'm going to go ahead and start reading in verse uh, 16 of chapter 3. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So when we see the hardship in our own work, what we're seeing is the thorns and thistles that are referenced um, in this passage that we uh, just read. There's a reason for the difficulty that we encounter, and that is that sin introduced death into the world. And I think the best uh, term that I've seen to kind of describe this is frustration. So where, you know, prior to, um, prior to sin entering the world, prior to the curse, you had uh, work was good. Um, we had work. It is clearly part of God's design, but it didn't have the frustration that it has now. Now we see it has been twisted and things are hard. Um, and we see this echoed in Romans 8, too. Um, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know now that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So in both these passages, you see um, this idea of, you know, there's the presence of pain, there's this frustration, this um, groaning um, in the world. Keller writes, God had warned Adam and Eve that if they ate the tree, they would die. Most readers may assume um, that God is speaking of immediate physical death. So it is surprising to us when Adam and Eve eat of the tree and they do not slump lifeless to the ground. But that would happen in due course, for eventual physical shutdown is one aspect of comprehensive death and decay that now comes to every aspect of human life. Nothing works as it should. Sin leads to a disintegration of every area of life, spiritual, physical, social, cultural, psychological, temporal, eternal. So scripture dim itself demonstrates for us the effects of sin. Um, and in the verses following the passage from Genesis that we read, uh, show that sh the shame that sin brings setting in with Adam blaming each other, uh, blaming the serpent, um, even blaming God. In Genesis 8.3.8, there is an inadequate awareness of the seriousness of sin. Moral perceptions are clouded, and the self-centered view of values is well beneath the God-centered view. The blindness of sin is beginning to take effect. From the moment of the fall, humankind has suffered a moral schizophrenia, neither able to deny sinfulness nor acknowledge it for what it is. So in simple terms, sin and death have wreaked havoc on creation. So, so what does that have to do with, with work? Um, <clears throat> today's theme is that the Bible is honest about the brokenness of the world and its effect on work. And so there's three different areas that we're going to focus on. And again, I'm borrowing much of the framework from this book here, Every Good Endeavor. Um, so if you want to read more about it, um, 
that's kind of the, the framework that I'm using for this discussion. But the three things that we're going to talk about today are uh, how work can be fruitless, how it can be pointless, and it becomes selfish. Those are all effects of the brokenness um, that is a result of the fall. So we'll start with um, work being fruitless. As we see from those, the passage in chapter 3 of Genesis, um, God has made us to work, yet now, after sin has entered the world, we read that, we read that work itself uh, becomes, under sin, painful toil um, in verse 17. So work itself is not a curse, but it now lies with all other aspects of human life under the curse of sin. Thorns and thistles will come up um, as we work, and part of the curse of work in a fallen world is its frequent fruitlessness. So what do we mean when we use the term fruitlessness? In uh, verse 18 of chapter 3, we see thorns and thistles, it, talking about the earth, shall bring forth for you. And I think this clearly implicates Adam's work, contrasting it with God placing Adam in the garden to work and keep it uh, before the fall. Um, now that sin has entered the world, world, the curse implies that Adam is going to continue to work, but now his work is going to produce thorns and thistles instead of good fruit. So it's the idea that our work now no longer just produces good fruit. It is going to, at times, produce no fruit um, or even uh, bad fruit. Um, again, quoting from Keller, it means that in all our work, we will be able to envision far more than we can accomplish, both because of a lack of ability and because of resistance in the environment around us. The experience of work will include pain, conflict, envy, and fatigue, and not all of our goals. For example, you may have an aspiration to do a certain kind of work and perform at a certain level of skill and quality, but you may never even get the opportunity to do the work that you want. Or if you do, you may not be able to do it as well as it needs to be done. Or maybe you will be satisfied with the quality of your work, but will be bitterly disappointed with the results. I'm sure that everyone here has dealt with those experiences. Um, where you're just, you feel frustrated with the lack of product, good product from your efforts. You know, a, a common theme for me is getting to the, you know, end of the day, end of the day and just not having accomplished the tasks that I wanted to accomplish. Um, you know, it's a, a common conversation between Michelle and I at the end of the day. So how was your day? And it's, day was fine, but I didn't get anything done on my to-do list. Um, that's just a, a product of working in a sinful world. One of the interesting things, though, is that despite kind of having this head knowledge, we often may you know, know that work is fruitless. Uh, we often have a response of sort of a of shock that, you know, we're not seeing the fruit that we expect to see. Um, so we may think, okay, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. I'm working hard. I'm, you know, have the right priorities. And I'm not getting the fruit that I'm supposed to be getting from this work. 
So, you know, God's not must not be paying attention, or clearly he would reward me for all of my hard work that I'm doing. And um, we may not vocalize that, but oftentimes that's an attitude that we have towards God. And um, generally that's showing uh, this where we've kind of bought into the world's view of how um, if we just do things right, then we can somehow escape the realities of a broken world. And that's just not true. Um, this kind of touches on um, some, some of the, you've, I'm sure you've heard around here, the idea of a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. Uh, w- one writer uh, put it this way, theologies of glory are approaches to Christianity and to life that try in various ways to minimize difficult and painful things or to move past them rather than looking them square in the face and accepting them. Theologies of glory acknowledge the cross but view it primarily as a means to an end, an unpleasant but but necessary step on the way of personal improvement, the transformation of human potential. As Luther put it, the theology, the, theologian of glory does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. The theology of glory is, a nat, is the natural default setting for human beings addicted to control and measurement. <clears throat> so when we think about this in terms of work, the reason why I bring this up is that... <clears throat> When we have this sort of perspective, uh, we don't see fruitlessness and difficulty as something that God is at work in, but as a curse for failures or something that are beneath the Christian. We think that God owes us you know, one more rung on the ladder as long as we've done our part in working hard and in, in doing what we think we ought to have done in our work. And as Christians, we're certainly not alone in, in this mentality. This is um, really the religion of the world around us without any trappings of Christianity. Um, you may hear people talk about you know, being a good person or karma. or, um, And I think this is very obvious in the workplace. At least I, I see it in my own workplace. No place are people more able to see... Uh, justice when they're treated unjustly, when they they don't think that they've gotten their fair shake. They haven't been treated the way that they're supposed to. In contrast, a theology of the cross uh, understands the cross to be the ultimate statement of God's involvement in the world on this side of heaven. A theology of the cross accepts the difficult thing rather than immediately trying to change it or use it. It looks directly into pain and calls a thing what it is, instead of calling evil good and good evil. It identifies God as hidden in the suffering. And, and Luther took this even uh, a key step further. He said that God was not only hidden in suffering, but he was at work in our anxiety and our doubt. When you are at the end of your rope and you no longer have hope within yourself, that is when you run to God for mercy. It's admittedly difficult to accept the claim that God is somehow hidden among the wreckage of our lives, but those who are willing to struggle and despair may 
may in actuality be those among us who best understand the realities of Christian life. And I think this applies specifically to the fruitlessness that we experience um, in our work. It helps us understand that God is at work in our fruitlessness, and it allows us to not only to come to terms with the fruitlessness of our work, but to place our hope in Christ and not achieving glory in our work itself. There's a great consolation about this in uh, Genesis 3, where it, where it talks about that thorns and thistles will come out of the ground, but that we will also um, eat of the plants of the field. So work is going to be frustrating and fulfilling at the same time. We have our hope in God's story of redemption for the world that he created, a deep consolation that enables us to work with all our being, never being ultimately discouraged by the frustrating present reality of this world in which thorns grow up when we are trying to coax up other things. We accept the fact that in this world, our work will always fall short, just as sinners always fall short of the glory of God, because we know that our work in this life is not the final word. It's another uh, quote from Keller. So when we talk about fruitlessness, uh, we're talking about the frustrations we see in the world as a result of sin entering the world and acknowledging that sometimes, oftentimes, our work is going to not produce the fruit that we want helps us to have the right expectations towards our work and helps us to look towards this, looks toward the consummation of Christ's redemption of us. And we can take great joy in the fact that the fruit that we produce in our work here is not the end game. That's not what we're working for ultimately. Where we can look forward in, in seeing the work that Christ has accomplished for us. Mark? I know one of the issues I deal with knowing this is sometimes I'll say, okay, God, I see your plan, I see your game, so I will no longer strive for excellence. <laughs> I'm, just to, I'm just going to, you know, go through the motions because I know it's going to be fruitless. So, and it's a constant battle. Right. You know, that, that whole fruitlessness thing sometimes just makes you say, you know what, maybe I should just aim for fruitlessness and everything will be good. Right. Well, I think that's where the idea of frustration is helpful because we, I, I'm sure that we have all can identify with that. When we know something is, we, is not going to bear the fruit that we want, just feeling the frustration of, you know, what's the point? And... Um, and ultimately, the point is that our work is unto the Lord, that we are you know, serving God through our work, even if it's not bearing the fruit that we want it to bear. Um, <clears throat> what? <laughs> well, he, he, we can take such confidence that he is working things together in us um, for, the same, for the same end, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we are frustrating to others as well. <laughs> so the other point, uh, the second point about 
the toil of work that we want to talk about is work being pointless. And what I mean by that is where we are, again, frustrated by unconsummated skills, unfulfilled aspirations, um, experience no satisfaction or fulfillment in our work, even when we have realized uh, aspirations, and even when we're successful, we can look at that and see what's the point of that. And we're going to look at Ecclesiastes to kind of instruct us on this aspect of work. So um, we're going to look at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. But as a backdrop for what's going on is the teacher there is going through various pursuits to find fulfillment and meaning in life under the sun. And there's three identifiable pursuits of the teacher in this regard. There's an attempt to make sense of life through learning and wisdom, through knowledge. Uh, The second is an attempt to make uh, life fulfilling through the pursuit of pleasure. And then the third one is the focus of our discussion today, and that's seeking fulfillment through the pursuit of achievement and hard work. Someone want to read uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 26? Any takers? All right. Um, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after me. I hated all my toil. Um, I, hated under my, all my, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, itself, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving. Here we have the sentiment really expressed in that last uh, statement that our toil is vanity and striving after the wind. And why does the teacher draw this conclusion? Uh, Well, we're made for work like we've already talked about. Uh, So when we work, we want to make an impact. We want it to um, mean something. This could mean getting personal recognition for our work. It could mean making a difference in the world, uh, making a difference in our field, uh, doing something to make the world a better place. But 
the teacher is saying in Ecclesiastes is that despite all this, despite all of you know those great aspirations, that our, our toil is is meaningless, and. Uh, I'll quote again from Keller. Whether quickly or slowly, all the results of our toil will be wiped away by history. The person takes the business or job after you may undo all that you have done. In short, even if your work is not fruitless, it is ultimately pointless. And here's the big if. If life is uh, life under the sun is all there is. Um, and and we'll we'll get into that. That this really points us to what our ultimate uh, purpose is, what the ultimate goal of our work is. But you know, I see that in terms of you know, at my work, you know, I can have an issue that I, it's going to get decided by a, a judge or a jury, and you know, I can think in my head, okay, you know, ninety nine times out of a hundred, it should go this way. And it may not matter how excellent the brief is, how good the argument is, and it is, you know, pointless. Um, or take, for example, parents who have striven to raise children uh, to follow after God, but after all their hard work and sacrifice, uh, their children reject them in God, causing them to question what's the point of all of this hard work, all of this effort that I've put into I'm trying to, you know, raise these children. We can see how uh, a byproduct of our work is that it may alienate us from God and those around us. That um, just as uh, that the the we see the working out of this pointlessness in maybe people who are being taken advantage of in their work or. Um, or the ways that it causes us to lose perspective on life, where our fulfillment and meaning is in work itself. And as we've talked about, you know, we do we we work more than just about anything else, and God's given us a capacity to do that to work. Uh, but it's easy to see how, if our focus is on just this toil under the sun, that. That's going. We're going to have a sense of pointlessness from that. Um, if we look at chapter four of Ecclesiastes, uh, verses seven through eight, we read again: "I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure?" This also is vanity and unhappy business. And that's illustrating how work can convince us that we're working hard for our family um, while we're being seduced through ambition to neglect them. So what are we to do? What's the solution to this pointlessness in work? Uh, In chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, the teacher does not leave us hopeless in this pointlessness of our work. He, uh, 3.22, he says, So I saw that there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. How do we get satisfaction in light of everything else that he said about work and it being pointless? Well, that verse says that we should take pleasure in his toil because it is God's gift to man. Uh, 
we're going to go to chapter 4 to see how do we secure this gift. Uh, and it gives us some insight. Chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Uh, Keller notes that the teacher concedes that satisfaction in work in a fallen world is always a miraculous gift of God. And yet we have a responsibility to pursue this through a particular balance. Tranquility without toil will not bring us satisfaction. Neither will toil without tranquility. There will always be both. Secondly, we need to uh, think about our vocation and as being primarily or, or first as unto the Lord. Work becomes much more than what we produce or the uh, individual task itself. We think back to the, the quotes that I mentioned the first week from Luther and Calvin about the dignity of work and design of work, of God for work, um, in the most mundane tasks. And it's due to this type of an understanding that our work is not pointless because we do it to love God and love our neighbor. Further, work functions for us as an evangelist, evangelist pointing us to Christ. So Paul Stevens writes, The teacher's holy doubt gives us the opportunity to find in God what we cannot find in our own work under the sun. Thus work becomes an evangelist to take us to Christ. And the gospel we hear from Jesus is not that if we accept him, we will be insanely happy and successful in our jobs, but that we will find our work satisfying in Jesus. He alone can fill the God-shaped vacuum in our souls. So it is not just the Old Testament teacher in Ecclesiastes, but Jesus who asks the probing questions that, we've been, that we're talking about. So ultimately, for the believer, this satisfaction will only come as we find our satisfaction in Christ. Only because he toiled for us on the cross can we find true rest and satisfaction. We no longer have to toil to earn God's blessing. It is in what he has accomplished that, we, that our work finds, our, finds meaning. So when we talk about work seeming pointless... We're talking about the seemingly ultimate you know, meaninglessness if life is all that there is. Uh, but it reminds us of the reality that this world is not all we have. That our meaning is found in Christ and it enables us to live through this world, uh, live as though this world is not all that we have. We can experience tranquility and toil in our work because our ultimate meaning, purpose, and identity are not wrapped up in our work. They are wrapped up solely in Jesus Christ. So the third aspect of you know, work being toil and hard is that it becomes selfish. This is in contrast to our discussion last week where we talked about how God has designed our work to serve others. as Calvin would say, to be an instrument of God's providence, serving the basic needs of our neighbor, or as Luther would say, instead using work to, uh, or, or 
Instead, what we do is we use work to distinguish ourselves from our neighbor and to make a name for ourselves. So we'll look at Genesis 11, 2 through 4, which illustrates this point. Um, and this is the, you know, the, the story of the Tower of Babel. I'll just read it. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in the Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. We, sh- we see a shift here. Um, you know, this is a few chapters away from the creation uh, narrative that we've talked about a lot about. And we see a shift in the stewardship that you see in the garden and the way that God designed man to work to this selfish ambition to make a name for ourselves. Derek Kidner writes, the elements of the story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. The project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement. At the same time, they betray their insecurity as they crowd together to preserve their identity and control their fortunes. Work has the capacity to expose in our hearts pride more than just about anything else. And I'm sure that we have all experienced that over and over again, whether it's you know, pride in uh, your work or in your school or in the accomplishments of your children, uh, things that we've invested time and energy and effort in. Work has the amazing capacity to expose. Next week we'll talk about how work exposes our idols. But um, it really exposes pride in our own hearts. And we tend to have the same idea that we see illustrated by the people in the Tower of Babel where let's do this great achievement and make a name for ourselves. Um, you know, I certainly ex- have experienced that a lot in my own uh, work experience. You know, prior to going to law school, I managed a Radio Shack store. Nothing glamorous, um, but I was very content. God gave us uh, great contentment, making very little money, you know, working retail six days a week. Um, and, uh, you know, we were blessed in that. And, you know, when I chose to go to law school, I was, at least in terms of worldly standards, I kind of made a lot of decisions that didn't make the most sense if you're trying to get ahead in the world. Um, and, uh, and I saw very, as I started kind of going down that path, I saw this frustration with, uh, you know, feeling, seeing the selfishness of my work kind of take root in my heart and um, fixating on myself and my education and my prospects and what I could accomplish. And the result was a bitter heart that was alienated from God. And fundamentally, it was tied to this time and this experience was viewing as what my work, and at that time it was schooling, but what it could do for me. You know, 
how it was not in service to the Lord or service to those around me. It was what I could accomplish for myself. And it really exposed, I think, this sin of pride in my heart. Um, and it was only when I acknowledged that and again found my identity in Christ. Um, and as it pertains to work, viewing my work as service to him, that I was free from this sort of selfishness. And it's not a complete freedom, obviously, because we all continue to experience that. But um, I was experiencing what C.S. Lewis describes in Mere Christianity when he wrote, Now what I want you to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more than the next man. We say we are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, uh, but we are not. People are proud of being richer or clever or better-looking than others. And often this is at the root of the selfishness of our work. Another example that we see in Scripture uh, that Tim just talked about last week was the story of uh, Cain and Abel. And we see, um, you know, Cain is working the ground. Abel was keeping sheep. There's the sacrifice that Tim talked about, that the fruit of the ground and uh, that uh, Cain brought, the fruit of his work, and Abel bringing the sacrifice uh, from his flock. And that Hebrews 11 tells us that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable because it was made in faith and that Cain's was not. And Cain's reaction is anger. And in terms of work, it tells us something about how he was viewing um, his work. He was looking to what he was doing for his meaning. His works, his work, and, and very literally his work of, of cultivating the ground um, was a means with which he was trying to commend himself to God. And when it did not do what he wanted it to do, he experienced the disappointment and alienation that ultimately led him to murder his brother. So I think it's imperative that we recognize that each of us have this DNA or self-centeredness, this, uh, this pride in our hearts, and it can raise its head in a way um, at work. It could be, you know, mastering the knowledge in our workplace. You know, taking pride in that, you know, I know everything that I, that I need to know about this. Or it could be um, the way that our children behave. Or that I can, you know, create something better. I can do this job better than the next guy. So I caution you to, as we think about our work, that that's one of those frustrations that has been wrought by the fall, is, this, is pride and selfishness in our work. And we need to confront that and repent of that and recognize that that selfishness is not how God designed work and that if we are using our work as unto the Lord, that's not going then we're going to be looking at how to serve others with our work, not how our work can serve ourselves. 
when we focus on the brokenness of the world, it's not just to uh, wallow in the difficulties of the world. It's um, so that we are not only more capable of understanding the world, but that we're not tempted to rely on ourselves. The brokenness of the world in which we live should push us to the cross over and over again. Uh, because it's only in the cross that we are saved from that brokenness and from ourselves, the, the frustration uh, tied to work even in ourselves. So as Christians, we can acknowledge that work is hard because of the effects of the fall. Uh, we have to acknowledge that we're going to experience these things. We're going to experience fruitlessness in our work. We're going to experience a sense of pointlessness what is the point of what we're doing? And we're going to see in our own hearts and in those around us a selfishness in our work. But that's not the end of the story. We know that work can be fruitless, but that God is at work in our fruitlessness. Um, we know that we can sense pointlessness in our work, but that in it's in this sense work points us to Christ in whom we have ultimate meaning. And we can acknowledge that our work is selfish, which, which exposes our brokenness and need for Christ's ongoing work in our hearts to sanctify us. Um, and so while work is hard, we see how God is continuing to use work in our lives, not just as he created it, not just as we've looked at kind of the intended order for work, but he's still at work in using, using work um, in our lives today um, as we go about um, the various vocations that he's called us to in work. So anybody have any, that's all I have. Anybody have any observations or comments? Yep. Uh, do you think because uh, as Christians, the Bible, because the Bible is not really clear on what the Yeah. I you're talking about there being work, you know, in new new heavens and the new earth? Is that what you're talking about? Sure, yeah. I think that's probably a fair observation that we might um, lose. I mean, I think, I think that's probably true, but I think that what we have to focus on is that what we're called to do now is Scripture is clear about that, that we are called to work as unto the Lord, that we're called to, uh, you know, we'll talk more uh, in a couple weeks kind of how the gospel affects our work, and that is in a lot of different ways, in some very practical ways that, you know, we are um, working as though we're serving God with our efforts. Um, so I think that you're right that ultimately thinking about, um, you know, what is, you know, what eternity is like, you know, what we are, um, why we're working, um, and ultimately, um you know, finding that purpose in, 
in God is going to affect how we work right now. Um, but uh, I think there's lots of different things that can distract us from from our work, you know, in the present day. So, any other comments before we leave? All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to think about uh, work and uh, looking at what Scripture has to say about it, and as believers, uh, how we ought to respond to that in acknowledging the world the way it is and looking forward with great hope and anticipation to uh, to who you are and, and what you've already accomplished and what you will bring to fruition in our lives, uh, both now and ultimately uh, in eternity. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts now as we go to worship uh, and, uh, and hear from your word and pray that you would give us... Um, hearts that are soft and pliable and that the Holy Spirit would be at work in them. We thank you for these things in your name. Amen.